All right. Okay, guys, in just a second, I'm going to have you stand for the reading of the scripture. But before I do, let me give a quick explanation. This is happening more and more, so it's becoming just like sort of comedic now. But uh, the bulletin says something different than what I'm actually going to do tonight. Um, realized yesterday that I had bitten off a little bit more than I could chew. And I wanted to do a little bit of a smaller section of scripture and um, really dig in on some of the things that we see at the beginning of this portion of Romans 3. Um, And so uh, I've got a smaller bit of text that's going to be up on the screen. We're going to look at Romans 3, verses 21 through 24. Um, And just FYI, the sermon title, it says filling in the gaps. That that makes no sense now. Um, But I didn't have a better one to put in, so I just left it up there. Uh, So just in case you're wondering. So go ahead and stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. We're going to go through verse 24. If you would follow along with me in your Bible, God's word says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father God, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Father, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and in his name alone. Amen. And thanks for standing. You guys can be seated. Hey, Brian, would you do me a favor? Let's cut these fans and just rely on the AC. I think it's cool enough to do that. But the metronome click tonight is uh, its getting to me. <laughs> it's going to make me talk faster than I need to. Stay on beat. Um, here's how I want to start, y'all. With telling you about the pride and joy of Augusta, Georgia, where I grew up. Crystal River Water Park. Crystal with a K, mind you. It was the most redneck, run-down like lawsuit waiting to happen water park the world has ever seen. And I loved it to death. It was my favorite place in the summer in the whole wide world. It had a, it it had a slide called the dragon's tail where you rode on this mat, but there wasn't enough water. So the friction would stop you halfway down. There was a, there was one, one slide so extreme, the sonic shoot that they made you wear like this makeshift uh, football helmet when you went down the slide. And then my personal favorite, the one that the reason why I'm sharing all this with you is it was called the black hole. That's the part where you guys go, ooh, scary. The black hole was called it because you, you would start off uh, on this platform, but it would immediately take this plunge underground and the entire slide would twist and turn underground, so it was just totally pitch black dark. My sister refused to go on it because she was convinced that there was probably like spiders and snakes down in there, which truthfully there, there probably was, but um, I loved it. Because at the very end of the slide, you, you come around the last bend, you've been in darkness the entire time, and you come around this bend, and the last bit of the slide was this long straightaway that went downhill. And when you would get to the straightaway, you could see light 
far in the distance. It was just like a pinprick at that point, just this little tiny dot of light. But as you picked up speed going down that straightaway, it would get bigger and bigger and bigger until you just like launched out into the sunlight, into a waiting pool with a teenage lifeguard that wasn't paying attention. Through the spider webs and it all, you, you were out in the light. It was the coolest finish to a water slide. I mean, the world's ever seen, perhaps. Is that hyperbole? I think not. So the reason I'm telling you all this, it's, I know, cheesy, cheesy, cheesy. But that really this week was kind of the metaphor I had in my mind for where we've been in Romans. There's a sense in which the first few chapters of Romans has been like we're in the underground part of this water slide. It's been dark and dreary and spider webs and twists and turns. We can't see where we're going. I mean, we've been talking about sin and brokenness and misery. We've been talking about hypocrisy and self-righteousness and how that deludes us into thinking that we're in a better position with God than we actually are. And we've also talked about the wrath of God being poured out against all of those things. There's been a lot of hard stuff that we've talked about, a lot of dark kind of twists and turns, but it's all been leading to the light at the end of the tunnel, which we got to today. This verse, verse 321 that we started with, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. This is us coming out of the darkness of the black hole, shooting into the sun And we're finally getting to what it's all been leading up to, the light of the gospel. And like I said, it's introduced with that phrase, but now the righteousness of God is manifest. The righteousness of God is, it's a phrase that isn't new to us. We've seen it already in the book of Romans. The very first chapter, not too far into it, we were told that the righteousness of God was going to be a key piece, sort of a key factor of the gospel, a cornerstone, really, of all that Paul was going to tell us about this good news of the gospel. And I remember when we preached about that. It's been a while. It was probably the springtime, maybe April, that we went through that. But I remember sharing with you guys about how that phrase, the righteousness of God, was one that had absolutely changed the world. And not just in the first century, like we're reading about here in Rome, but it had changed the world in the time period that we call the Reformation, when men and women were sort of rediscovering, in a sense, the beauty of the grace of the gospel. And I shared with you guys uh, about uh, the father of the Reformation, a a guy named Martin Luther, who, who talked about that phrase, the righteousness of God, and he said that That phrase in itself, when he properly understood it, was enough to make him think that the doors of paradise had been opened to him. That previously the righteousness of God had terrified him. It had given him nightmares. But now it made him want to stand on his head for joy now that he properly understood what he meant. Now, My plan this week was to sort of just sort of briefly make note of that since we've talked about it before and then move on to sort of fresh things that we haven't talked about yet. But what happened yesterday, like I told you, I sort of changed the plan on things is I just realized I was like, you know, 
I don't want to move past that phrase, the righteousness of God, so quickly. I want to sit in it again. And as a preacher, I want to take another crack at trying to prove to you guys why it's so crucial. So, if you'll bear with me, we're going to revisit what it is that is so special and significant about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. So let's start with a rhetorical question, okay? And one that you guys probably know good answer to, but it seemed like, a, seemed like the right way to start a rhetorical question. And that is just for me to throw out to you guys, what is the righteousness of God? How would you answer that if somebody asked you what that meant? Think about it for a second. I've got some ideas that I'm going to throw out to you guys. For instance, one, some people think the righteousness of God is captured fully by talking about God's faithfulness, i.e., God keeps his promises. God is righteous in that he is a God who never betrays what he said he's going to do, and if he commits himself to you, he'll never abandon you. That's his righteousness, that he's faithful. It's a good answer. But there are some people that kind of take another tack. They say the righteousness of God actually refers more to his goodness. That is, God always does what is right. Always. And he never, ever can be accused of doing something that would be said to be evil or wrong. Again, that's another pretty good answer. But there's still one other option. Some people, they say, no, 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 let's focus on God's justice here. The righteousness of God is the fact that God always treats people fairly and equitably. And he never lets evil go unpunished. Now, the interesting thing about these things, God's faithfulness, his goodness, his justice, is that sometimes when people talk about these things, they talk about it as if we've got to choose one or the other. Like it's an either or proposition. But as I can imagine that many of you guys are probably thinking as I say this is you're like, why, why can't we just choose all of them? Option D, all of the above. You'd be right if you said that. All of those things capture the essence of what this passage is talking about when it talks about the righteousness of God. It is his moral perfection. That he is perfectly faithful, perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly loving. Everything we know in this world as good is captured by him in its fullness. That is the righteousness of God. And that is the thing that is such a key piece of Paul's gospel, his good news. But, as I shared with you briefly just a little bit ago, Traditionally, not everybody has thought of that righteousness as good news. In fact, Martin Luther, the fellow that I mentioned before, he said there was a point in time in his life where the righteousness of God to him was terrifying. It gave him nightmares. It made him want to put his heads under the covers and, and hide. Why? Because for him to have the righteousness of God show up was to present him with a standard that he had failed miserably to keep. 
To see all of God's perfection, his perfect love, his perfect faithfulness was to be a reminder of him that he hadn't been perfectly loving. He hadn't been perfectly faithful, that he had fallen on his face with the things that God had required of him. And so when he sees God's righteousness, it's just a reminder that he had failed. There was a a phrase in the passage that we read tonight that said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Luther had in his mind with God's righteousness. A reminder that he had fallen short of it. But, as I said to open this, Paul doesn't seem to view God's righteousness in that terrifying way. He sees it as coming out of the dark slide and and blasting into the sun. It's exciting. It's awesome. It's, guess what, guys? But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Verse 22 said, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He is speaking about it, not in a way that gives him nightmares, but in a way that makes him want to jump for joy. Obviously, he sees the righteousness of God very differently. And that difference is not in a definition. Paul agrees with Martin Luther. The righteousness of God is God's perfect moral perfection. The difference is an application. In the gospel, God's righteousness is not a standard to live up to. It's not a standard that condemns you. In the gospel, God's righteousness is a gift that is given. As if he reaches in to his own being, grabs hold of his righteousness and then says, here, it's yours. Take it by faith. I give it to you to claim as your own. That's what God's righteousness means in the gospel. Imagine you're at a party. God's invited you to a party. Yeah, big deal, huh? God's party? It's one that you're planning for for a while in advance. You've got the best DJ in town. There's a lot of shrimp cocktails. I'm trying to get you guys to be excited about this. You're just looking at me like, yeah, I've been to a party like that. I don't care. Oh, what else do we need? There's Twister. Huh? Does that get you excited? What? A bounce house. Yes. Now we're talking. But you show up to this party, the most incredible party you've ever been invited to, and you feel good going into it. You've prepped. You've gotten ready. But then when you arrive and you see what God is wearing and what his guests have on, you realize that you are way underdressed. What you thought looked good actually in comparison looks like filthy, soiled garments. And here God comes around the corner. But instead of saying, you look disgusting, get out of here. He takes his own clothing, his own garment, his righteousness, and he clothes you in it. He gives it to you. He he, he wraps you in his own garments. It's there. You're welcome here. You belong. You're clothed in my righteousness. No one can tell you that you don't belong here. 
That's what's happening when Paul speaks about God's righteousness. It's a gift that he himself gives to you and clothes you in. And I know that by itself, speaking of God's righteousness can be an incredibly intimidating thing. God is holy, 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 so much so that when he appears in history, men fall on their face. They shield themselves from God's glory. And yet in the gospel, we're told that that very holiness and righteousness of God is given to his people by faith. When God sees you, what does he see if you're a believer? He sees you wearing his very own outfit. His perfect love and faithfulness and justice. And it looks good on you. You belong where he is. Now, if you were a believer in the first century, you were hearing this preached. I mean, imagine your head's just exploding. Oh my gosh, this is incredible. Should have been. But I would imagine that the very next sort of question you would have is, how do I get my hands on God's righteousness like that? It's a good question to have. You hear about this incredible act of God, you should be saying, yes, I want that. I want his righteousness in my life. But what we do as human beings is we usually, when we want something, we figure out a way to, uh, to, to make it ours in a way where we have control over it. We trade for it. We purchase it with our buying power. We, we manipulate God into giving it to us somehow. I was sharing with the folks up in Paradise this morning that I had been recently reading through the book of Acts. And, and uh, early on in the book of Acts, we come across this character. Um, in some Bibles, it's translated Simon Magus. In other Bibles, he's called Simon the Sorcerer. And his contribution to the story in the book of Acts is one where he sees the power of the Holy Spirit poured out in Samaria... And he immediately asked the apostles how he can buy that power. Like buy it with silver and gold. He was a magician. He wanted access to that kind of power. He's like, give it to me. I'll give you whatever price you want. The apostles tell him, this isn't something you can buy with your coins. It's the power of God. And in the same way, God's righteousness is not something that we can purchase with our buying power. And I just don't mean our dollars here. I mean our character, our good works, our deeds, our efforts. Notice in verse 321, this was the very first verse of our passage. But when I read it before, I cut it off short. I'm going to read it again, the full thing now. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. God's righteousness comes up on the scene and it is not contingent upon your law keeping. We've talked about the law a lot in our study on Romans. It's come up uh, uh, very often and it's going to continue to come up very often in Romans. And we've talked about it in lots of different ways, but the most simple way that I can give it to you guys here, just to be brief, to say that the law was God's commandments and rules that he gave his people so that they would live in a way that honored him. And they would live in a way that was in keeping with how he had designed and made them to live. 
And for a group of people that are familiar with God's law, the Ten Commandments say, and have been pretty faithful in keeping that law, imagine what a temptation it would be to use your law-keeping as some sort of bargaining chip to prove to God that you deserved that righteousness he was given away. To purchase it. Uh, to make a trade with him for it. Lord, l- look at how generous I've been. Uh, how kind and compassionate I've been. Lord, look at the way that I have loved my neighbor. And I know not perfectly. I mean, most of my neighbors I love well, but one of them's really annoying. But I do a pretty good job. That was, I, I, I was making that up, by the way. I don't have an annoying neighbor. Um, yeah. <laughs> But anyways, we say all these things to try to prove to God that we can earn that righteousness he's given or or purchase it. And it doesn't work that way. God tells us straight up when the gospel comes on the scene that his righteousness has appeared and it is not contingent upon your law keeping. It's received in another way. That you can't ever claim and say, I purchased it, I bought it, I deserve it. And not only that, we, there's another way that we've talked about the law so far in our study in Romans. And it's the law as sort of a cultural boundary. So you, you know that if we've gone through especially chapter 2 of Romans, we saw that the law of God was the special possession of the people of Israel. And so what that meant for many of them is that the law was the thing that distinguished them from everybody else. And having the law was the signal that they were an insider and everybody else was an outsider. They were God's people. Those people were not. And the law became this thing that having it made you differentiate from everybody else. And so perhaps part of what Paul is getting at here when he tells us that God's righteousness is manifest apart from the law is he's saying it also isn't something that you can purchase based on your people group. You can't bargain with God and say, God, look at the family I grew up in. Look at the country that I'm a citizen of. Look at how much wealth I have or how impoverished I am. Look at the color of my skin. Look at the the people group or the ethnicity that I'm in. None of that can be something that you bargain with God to get his righteousness. It is something that is manifested apart from the law. So then how do you get it? Verse 24. Well, let me back up. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That is clothed with his righteousness by his grace as a gift. You receive it as a gift of his grace. Nothing else. When it all comes down to it. The thing that gives us access to God's perfection and righteousness is simply by confessing with our mouth and believing in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
that's it. The gospel has this incredible way of one-upping itself, so to speak. As soon as we read the most seismic, earth-shattering statement the world's ever seen, that the righteousness of God is something that he is giving to his people, we immediately read that something that's even more earth-shattering than that. That his righteousness will be given to them purely on the basis of grace. A gift. Not to be earned. Not to be bought. Not to be purchased. Not to be coerced. Only to be received as a free gift of his grace. For any that would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Kevin Reed, um, I met with him this week and he, he shared with me this quote in a book he's been reading that I thought would be maybe a good way to summarize this. It's by a fellow named Robert Capon. Uh, the book he's reading is not by Robert Capon, but the one he's reading, Capon's quoted within, it says this, the word of the gospel after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself up to heaven by your own bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they even started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that blossom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into its glass. You can't water down grace. You can't mix it with ginger ale or good works for that matter or the deeds that you think that set you apart or the fact that you're part of this people group and not that people group. Grace is purely the gift of God to be accepted and received by believing him and who he told us he is. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the savior of sinners like me. I am. Um, here's how I want to end. My natural instinct is to try to sort of get into the nitty gritty of applications that maybe aren't so obvious to see the ways in which we resist this grace, but we need to accept it. I'm not going to do that today, partly because I don't have time. It's five after five. But mostly because I felt last night when I was looking over things that I needed to do something different, and it's this. I need to invite you guys to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I know that there are many of you guys in here that I know well. And I believe you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I interact with you in a way of knowing that you're my brothers and sisters of Christ and assuming the best about you. But here's what else I know. My personal story is one of sitting in the church for decades before I truly believed the gospel. I heard it a lot. I lived the life of a good kid who followed the rules, but it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I heard this gospel of grace and it rang true for the first time. And I believed. And there's no way that I'm going to presume that everybody that comes to church here has believed this gospel 
the way that perhaps God is calling them to do even tonight. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is no one in here that needs to believe this for the first time, but perhaps there is. And perhaps it's somebody that's considered themselves a Christian for a long, long time, but they're hearing about the grace of God and the righteousness of God that's given to them to be clothed in, and they're saying, I want that. I don't think I've ever had that. Tonight's the night to get it. So if you would, all of us, let's pray together. But especially if you feel the Holy Spirit pulling at your heart to confess and believe, pray with me now. Lord God, I, I come before you. Nothing in my hands I have to earn your grace, to buy your grace, to deserve your grace. Lord, all of it is like filthy rags in the grand scheme of things. All I have is to lay at your feet and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord God, please humble my heart to be able to lay at your feet and say that because I know that when that happens, Lord, you are willing and ready to clothe me in your righteousness, to make me holy and blameless in your sight by the blood of Jesus to cleanse me and through his resurrection to give me new life so that I can claim your righteousness as my own. Lord, I want that. Please, in the name of Christ, give it. Make me yours. And let there never be a day where I'm not walking with you in faith. Thank you for your grace. I have nothing without it. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.